Good morning, church. Good to be with you. And thank you for Wesley's rapid recovery. This morning I'll be reading from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their windows were being, widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicandor, and Timion, and Parmemius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became the obedient to the faith. God, we thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, we ask that you be with Aaron as he brings us a message today. And may we open our ears and our hearts be pleased with what he has to say. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you all. I thought the robins out the window were going to be our biggest distraction today. Thank you all for caring for my son. I'm going to pray again. Father, we thank you for this time to gather as your people, for your word that is profitable, for your grace that is sufficient, for your sovereignty that is powerful, for your care that is gentle. We thank you for being uh, such a good father. We pray that you would be honored in our time this morning. And you'd be with Wesley and help him to get some rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Things they don't teach you in seminary, lesson number 17. Well, this morning we are talking about proper church leadership. Um, I've watched a few TV shows, so I'm pretty sure I'm an expert on presidential leadership, like West Wing or Designated Survivor. Um, typically, there's a scene in these TV shows where uh, a presidential cabinet member, he goes or she goes to meet with the president and they bring uh, a resignation letter. 
I think Teddy Roosevelt is the one who came up. I couldn't figure out exactly who it was, but he, I think he's the one who came up with the phrase that his cabinet serves at the pleasure of the president. Where these folks, they continue to serve so long as the president is pleased with them. And it, it doesn't seem like it's a great amount of joy that they have in that, in saying those words. It's more of a sense of fear. Uh, and so this morning as we're in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 13, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, Paul is going to lay out some parameters for church leadership, for proper leadership. And I didn't bring a resignation letter this morning, but this passage is a hard introspection. I think any pastor who preaches this text and studies this text has a hard time considering what it says. And the text calls out two offices of committed leaders in God's church. But we all must remember that Jesus is our chief shepherd. We serve at his pleasure, but it's also for our joy. Poor leadership is all around the world today. That's why many people have left the church, why many people don't want anything to do with the church. Some of you know who that person is. Our world loves when leaders fall. Many prowl around seeking to bring leaders down. The bigger the leader, the harder the fall, the louder the world rejoices. And the church should be sad, should be shocking for us. Friends, the chief shepherd, he never fails us. Jesus is the one who builds his church. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The gates of hell shall never prevail against our risen Lord. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you. Your son sitting at your right hand is ruling and reigning. The humble Messiah, the crucified Lord, the risen Son of God. God, would he, would you lead our time this morning as we look at what proper church leadership looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at what Paul says first about overseers or elders. He says, the saying is trustworthy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We'll stop right there. 
This saying is trustworthy. If you recall, this is Paul's means by saying to Timothy, his protege, pay attention. He used this as term in the ESV of overseer. The King James Version uses the term bishop. Our term that we use here is that of an elder. And if you survey the New Testament, you'll see that Paul and the New Testament writers, they use these terms, pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer, interchangeably for the same office. And this desire that this man is to have, Paul says, is noble. From moms, you probably... Realized last week as you drug some of your kids to take a photo with you, this is not what we want for an elder. We don't want to drag these men into taking this office. They must want the role because the qualifications are very difficult. And Paul says they should be above reproach. This does not mean that they need to be perfect, although I'm not asking for a pass for myself or any of our leaders. But if perfection is the goal, no church would have any elders this side of eternity. Only the chief shepherd is perfect. And above reproach, it means a lack of criticism. That the pattern of an elder's life is a life that no objection or charge could be brought against him. An elder should be a model of Christ-likeness. Not sinlessness, but a lifestyle that you would not expect wrongdoing of. It would surprise us, and it should surprise us, if an elder fails. I told Kristen a couple times this week as we were uh, away, uh, I feel like such a failure. Neither Chris nor I are perfect. We both miss the part and the mark. But we strive for personal holiness. We strive for holiness amongst our elders and our leaders. We strive for holiness for the sake of the church, that God would raise up other elders in this church to fulfill the roles that maybe God has put on their hearts. Generally, elders are to be above reproach, and Paul goes into some specifics. You see a few of them. I'll go through them quickly. A husband of one wife. First and foremost, this man is faithful to his wife, emotionally, relationally, physically committed to his wife. No other woman, whether digital or physical. The Greek word literally means a one-woman kind of man, which also means this is a man. I'll run through some more quickly. Sober-minded. This man is self-restrained. He's free from quick and uncontrolled actions. They're self-controlled. This is a fruit of the Spirit. They're self-restrained. Free from quick and uncontrolled actions. I already said that. They're not impulsive. Self-controlled. Respectable. Dignified. They're a life worth imitating. Hospitable. They're compassionate. Welcoming. They're generous with others. A life worth imitating as they welcome in strangers. Able to teach. This is the key difference between an elder and a deacon. So it doesn't mean teaching everywhere, but elders handle the Bible with care and with precision. 
This happens in our church on Wednesdays in small groups or even as you're standing in the back of the service before or after in benedictions, in giving counsel, in calls to worship. Many other instances, leading our church through the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of every month, or as we do baptisms, explaining what that looks like. When this man speaks, the Bible comes out. Not a drunkard, self-controlled with substances, alcohol, tobacco, drugs, even marijuana. Marijuana is for one purpose, getting high. A loss of sobriety. I think you can include that in this category. Not violent, but gentle. This person is gracious and fair, willing to correct, but as Jonathan Edwards calls this, a lamb-like or dove-like spirit. This person is not quarrelsome, not looking for a fight, whether verbally or physically. They're not argumentative, always looking for someone to correct or debate with. They're seeking unity rather than division. They're not a lover of money. He serves to invest in the sheep, not to control the sheep or to control purse strings. Money is not an elder's first aim in life. An elder is to manage his own household well, to care for his children. I would have left if I needed to, to care for God's children. Caring for his own children is the example of what Paul says is how he would care for God's children, to love his wife like Christ loves his bride. We talked about that last week. He's an effective father. He cares for but also corrects his children with the word of God, with prayer nurturing order as opposed to chaos at home. Paul wasn't married. He didn't have children. And so an elder doesn't have to be married. An elder doesn't have to have children. It does add a lot of wisdom. It does help in counseling, in leading to have that experience. But if he is married, he graciously loves his wife. His children are submissive, following a sacrificial servant. Like we saw last week, this is not heavy-handed leadership and authoritarianism. It's sacrificial headship. He's also not a recent convert. He's an established believer, experienced and wise, can prove that he is converted. And this one comes with a warning. It protects against, if you see in the text, Satan's condemnation. Where a seasoned saint can successfully withstand the condemnation that Satan always wants to pound in our heads. This man is also well thought of by outsiders. He's respected by the unsaved world around us. And what this means is that the unsaved world around him actually knows he's a believer where he's got a credible witness and integrity in his speech, in his conduct with those outside of the church. And this comes with another warning. If not, Satan will use it as a snare to bring Jesus dishonor. And so proper leadership starts with a man of God. Elders love God and elders love others. And we see in this text, first and foremost, that character is much more important than competency. Paul is more concerned with who elders are 
than with how gifted they are. So elders are first. Second, we have another proper leader, and that's the office of deacon. Look at verse 8, and we'll read through that paragraph. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons literally means in the text, someone who serves. Paul used this of himself as a servant of Christ in chapter 1. As Phil read the, in Acts 6, the apostles were called to be devoted to the word of God and to prayer. And deacons are to come alongside them and serving to free the elders and the apostles up to do what they were called to in each fulfilling their role. And we see that character matters for deacons as well. Acts 6 showed us they were men of good repute. They were dignified, Paul says, that they were worthy of respect. It's a similar type of terminology and language as being above reproach. They're not to be double-tongued. They're consistent in their speech. They're sincere in their dealing. They're honest in their actions. They, too, are not addicted to much wine. They don't love alcohol. The Bible views alcohol positively. We've seen that. We saw that in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. But the Bible also views alcohol as evil at times when it leads to drunkenness and it's abused. Deacons have control over things like alcohol, not the other way around. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. Whereas any dishonesty is wrong, and especially those who use the office in God's church for personal gain and material benefit should not be in that role. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They aren't experts, but they're men of faith. They have a solid grasp of God's word, and they understand the implications of the gospel and how it applies to their lives, but also to the lives of those in the church. They're tested. They're not like a new convert we saw for elders, where their actions match their character. You've probably heard me say the terms of a deacon should already be deaconing before they're into that role. They're tested. They're serving in the ways becoming of a deacon already. The same should be and could be said of an elder, that an elder should already be doing the work of shepherding. They already should be doing the work of overseeing what God is doing in his church. Deacons must be known, men of a good reputation. And then we have a weird transition in verse 11. Their wives. Deacon wives should also be 
qualified. Logically, the same should be said of elders' wives. And I don't believe that this passage here refers to deaconesses, although many would take that interpretation. Because if you look at verse 10 and then verse 12, it would be a weird, abrupt transition between 10, 11, and then back to 12. And so I think Paul is still speaking to the office of deacon. A deacon's wife should be dignified like her husband, not slanderers. The word here is devilish. Taking, talking maliciously, they should also be sober-minded, controlled in their mind and actions by the power of the Spirit. Deacons as well are to be a one-woman, um, yes, kind of man. We were joking, Carolyn and I. I made a mistake a few years ago in going too quickly. I'm not going to do that again. The Bible does call out women, though, as servants or deacons. But I think the office here, Paul is saying, should be that of a man. Like elders, they manage their own home well, too. And this isn't said with a heavy hand but it's with a heart of sobriety. And there's a blessing for deacons, personally as well as corporately for the church. Deacons, they get a good standing. The church, you, we gain confidence. Good standing for the deacon is not the motivation. The church's confidence is the motivation for deacons who want to serve the body of Christ. A church matures with proper church leadership. And so in summary, church leaders are called men. They're visible examples. They're mature in their faith. And they're commended by the church to be followed. So how do we apply this passage? I think this passage is meant for a third office in the church. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Charles Hodge said, A ministry is properly an office because it's something which cannot be assumed at pleasure by any and everyone. A man must be appointed thereto by some competent authority. It involves not only the right, but the obligation to exercise certain functions or to discharge certain duties and it confers certain powers or prerogatives which other men are bound to recognize and respect. The third office is us. It's the church. It's the members of the body of Christ, which is that third office that I think Paul wants us to remember. And that third office, you and I, are called, whether we're a leader or not, to consider these qualifications. Each of these qualifications is found in the Bible referring to Christians, to you and to me, whether we're an officer or not. And I would venture to propose to you all that as church members, as Charles Hodge said, you have authority and so you are an officer. Remember first, character matters. Not only for leaders, but for all of us. Many of you have served in the military or know people who have served in the military. And no matter the rank, an officer has been given authority and dignity. A lieutenant does not take away the honor of a general. A general. 
As members, we all have authority, and it should come with sobriety. Without members, we don't affirm leaders. So I thank God for our member or leaders, but I also thank God for our members. We all exercise authority, oversight. We all serve each other as we've all been entrusted with being the church together. And so we should seek for our leaders to be holy, but we should also seek for each other to be holy. Covenants are spiritual agreements between two parties. We talk about that a lot here. Promises for each other. And our membership here at Cornerstone Church is first and foremost a covenant that God has with us, where we believe the gospel, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, our covenant is with each other, where we gather together, we interact with one another, we love one another, we serve one another, we encourage one another, we rebuke one another if we're necessary. All the rest of the one another's in Scripture, we do that together as a church in the covenant of membership. And so that means you have to be around one another, to spend time with one another, so you can actually do the one another's with each other. And the third aspect of our membership that we talk about here is our covenant with our leaders, where leaders lead and members come alongside following the example of our leaders. And so... If you're a member of this church, you have a role. We all have a job to follow the scriptures, to be holy, for God is holy. If you want to become a member, I'd encourage you to please come talk to me. Hopefully I can convince you by the end of our time this morning that you should be a member of maybe not this local church, but a local church. We have a role to follow the scripture. But our character matters over our competency as well. Jesus calls the whole church to guard doctrine and to discipline members. Where we discipline each other through preaching to one another in the regular conversations from this pulpit as an example, as we encourage one another, as I or another leader encourages you. It's not just about me asking you, where's so-and-so been? But rather, you can go to the person too. Where have you been? Haven't seen you in a while. Is everything okay? How can I be praying for you? Is there any way I can serve you? All of us as members of this church, we covenant together and we have a responsibility to go do that for one another. Kristen will ask me from time to time, have you seen so-and-so? And maybe I know an answer. But I'll say, maybe you should go reach out to that person because God has put her in that person's life just as much as me. And just so you know, I don't share a lot of information of our conversations that maybe you and I have with Kristen because a lot of those burdens are not Kristen's to bear. And especially if you have not asked me to share Kristen, share with Kristen, it's not my responsibility to share with your sister in Christ 
you can go share with her if you would like her to know ways that she can come alongside you. Oftentimes you hear of a church hiring a pastor and they get a two-for-one deal where they get the wife as well as the pastor. I know Kristen loves serving you, but I'm the pastor, not her. You all have more authority than you think. You have more authority than I do. The keys of the kingdom are not given to its leaders, Jesus says. It's given to the church. Yet I do believe that the most biblical form of church government is elder-led congregationalism, where an elder leaves in the context of our church with our deacons and leaders are accountable. The highest authority in matters of membership, discipline, and doctrine is the whole congregation, not the few folks that are on the website. It's not for Chris, it's not for me, it's not for our deacons, it's for the entirety of our members, where we seek our own holiness and we welcome others into our lives to help us be holy. So first, this passage encourages holiness for all of us to take our role as church member seriously. So if bad theology comes from this pulpit or an incorrect interpretation of scripture, you as a church are to engage with me or anybody else who preaches here to say, that's not right. Members, we don't just bail on the church. The church releases or disciplines those who leave. Leadership is hard. I've already said we don't excuse sin. And even though leaders are responsible before God, we are all accountable to the covenant. Second, this passage should encourage holiness of our leaders. Many are probably figuring out how they can put together a resignation letter, letter later today. But above reproach means we should be shocked if a leader falls. Yet there are countless stories of the opposite, and many of you know them. Small compromises often lead to significant failure. We correct quickly but gently for the sake of your leaders and each other to be holy. It's most loving to correct, hey, you were short with that person before that leads to an abusive relationship from a leader to a member. Or you shouldn't look at that person like that before it leads to a snare and a trap. And worse, things like adultery. Some quick stories. One pastor was released because his, quote, conduct, conduct was contrary and harmful to the best infant in, excuse me, interest of the church. It's very vague, right? This brother was arrested a month ago for physically assaulting a woman in a parking lot. I'm not making this up. Another pastor called you out in sin and he said his response was he's the Lord's anointed if I ever say that fire me before I get off the stage and he said your accusation is demonic well it came to light 
recently that he covered up sexual assault charges of his father. He was using the church's funds to cover his father's legal expenses. And a month ago, he was arrested for a DUI. I'm not making this stuff up. We are only as accountable as we want to be, church. Trust me, I don't care what you want to avoid. If you want it, you will seek it and you will find it. And that goes the same for elders. Transparency and accountability matters. I meet with Josh Betty frequently. He knows my struggles. Kristen knows my struggles. My kids know my struggles. And they're very quick to tell me when I miss the mark. But I tell them that they can all go to the elders if I disqualify myself. My children and my wife need to be more faithful to Jesus than they need to be to me. And so if an accusation comes, a leader should be quick to not be defensive, to not go on a counter attack, rather to humbly take some time for some introspection. We should be holy. So should the leaders. Third, we should have integrity. In the church, trust is extended. Mistrust is earned. We assume the best of one another. In Christ, we expect, or sorry, we extend trust and we expect from one another honesty. If I ask you a question, I would expect you would be honest with me. If you ask me a question, you should expect me to be honest with you. A couple more stories. One pastor destroyed his church out of arrogance. Just went to a new state and started a new one. He's actually good now in many eyes because he's not woke. But he has not gone back to any of the thousands of folks who he hurt, who he destroyed, who he destroyed the witness in a major city in this country to repent and ask for forgiveness. Mistrust is earned. I don't think he should be doing the role that he's in without repentance. Pastor from New York. He was removed for adultery, but he just got recently hired at a church in Oklahoma, just forgetting all that he had done. And I'm all for forgiveness and grace, but this is not a role that leaders are entitled to. Mistrust can be earned. I've said, your leaders are not perfect. And many churches have people on deacon boards who run functionally the church. We don't have that here. They love to go after their leaders, to tear them down. They love to nitpick. Thank you for not nitpicking everything. But if you need to nitpick, you're welcome to do so. You don't need to keep your leaders honest. You should expect your leaders to be honest. We make decisions as a group, as elders and deacons. I don't get an extra vote. I know I have an influential voice, but we do want your input. I know you don't care about the type of toilet paper that we buy. Maybe some of you do. But impactful decisions, friends, we covet your feedback. We want to hear from you. We trust you. 
We trust God speaks as much through his members of his church as he does through the leaders of his church. And I think it's God's grace that he didn't bring me here at 25 years old. I came at 37. I needed to grow a lot. And I thank God for his timing. And I'm still growing, and you know that. Our old church helped me sand off a lot of rough edges. So thanks for trusting me, and thanks for trusting your leaders. But if there is any mistrust that has or will ever be extended from any of your leaders, including myself, please come talk to us. We'd love to earn it back. The church should be holy. Leaders should be holy. We should all have integrity. And I think Paul wants to warn us. I think he wants to warn us of what Satan loves to do to his, God's church. 1 Peter 5 eight. Be sober-minded. This is right after Peter said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you to the shepherds of the church. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Remember Peter, the one who denied Jesus, who met Jesus on the lake, who Jesus said, love my sheep, shepherd my sheep, love me in the process. This is Peter. I think he's got a little of authority in what he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, we are in a dangerous battle. So look again at our text. Elders, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of who? The devil. The term, diabolus, diabolos. Verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of who? The devil, diabolos. And then, for deacons' wives... Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders. What do you think that word is? Diabolos, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The spiritual battle is real. Ignoring it would be foolish. So pray for a church. Pray for the three offices, your elders, your deacons, your members. Jesus has gone before us. He has done his job perfectly at leading his sheep. He makes us holy, but Satan hates it. He desires nothing more than to pluck sheep from the flock to kill us, to put us into a snare, to condemn us. If I don't see here people here for a couple weeks, some of you have gotten phone calls. Haven't seen you in a couple weeks. If you're not here for a month, I'll probably want to meet with you. But it's not just my role. If you see friends and family of this church that are not here, you should reach out to them. If you're not here for longer, the question will be, do you really want to be here? Or do you want to live in the dangerous world, not protected by the three offices of the church, to fall into the snare and the trap of a devil? It's not a guarantee but it's a high likelihood. I am personally seeking to be faithful to Jesus in this. Our enemy hates our Savior. And he hates us in the process. He wants to destroy us. He wants to cause us to fall in our sin. And our members, as we covenant with one another, we say, seek after me if I don't show up. 
So those who have covenanted, you shouldn't be surprised if we pursue you. Even if you don't want us to, we're still going to do it. We won't go down without trying our hardest to call us to what God calls us to and what we ask of each other to do in the process of covenanting with each other. Friends, we need each other. And we call our leaders to follow the scriptures and to be faithful. And discipline is hard, but it's our role collectively in this battle that we wage. We're called to be like Christ. We're called to represent Christ, to grow as Christ. And Satan, he hates it. The major problem in the Ephesian church was their leadership. They allowed this false teaching to come in. They had distorted understandings of what leadership was to be like. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Trust me, this passage haunts me, but I'm accountable to Jesus. And so are your leaders. You call us to lead you. And so by God's grace, we will do that knowing who we are accountable first to first and foremost. Like a marriage, we say, till death do we part. We want to have that level of sobriety. We're not shackling you to the building. We're not saying you can never go to another church. But we want to be as serious about church membership as the Bible is. Church, if you aren't a church member, if you're not following the scriptures, Satan loves it. And he loves to use this sort of stuff against you. We don't condemn you. But a wandering sheep is a sheep in a lot of danger. Right, Phil? Phil's not a sheep. He was a shepherd. That's why I said that. Join proper leaders who would love to shepherd you and help you should be shepherded according to God's plan. Don't allow yourself to fall into Satan's trap, into Satan's condemnation, or even his character. You are a joy to serve. You gladly submit to our leadership. Dave Sater and Dave Bridges have agreed to go through a process of elder evaluation and we'll have them go through that process. Pray for them. The ERBC elders have agreed to release Josh Abedi or to fulfill a role as we release Josh Abedi, who's been super busy as of late. He'll actually be here with his family next week, so you can finally meet him. But we agreed that it'd probably be best for him to be released from his provisional eldering here at Cornerstone. And we asked the ERBC elders as Femi has now gone through uh, a season to get more accustomed to being part of their church leadership, to rotate through, to just sit in our leading or leaders meetings to speak into things they know us we know them but when judgments or discipline come and pure personal disputes arise gospel doctrine is emphasized by Paul in this letter and so would you consider Hebrews 13 17 
It's a heavy burden for the church. It's a heavy burden for leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For what advantage? For that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, we never need a resignation letter with Jesus. Yet we serve at the pleasure of the chief shepherd. He will never cast us out. No one can snatch us from his hands. But sometimes it feels like it. It's not just God's joy for us to serve in this church as leaders. It's our joy together. Your leaders aren't perfect. But I pray that we all continue to manifest a lifestyle that wrongdoing would be a surprise for all of us. We are in this together for each other's holiness, to obey Jesus together, and to make it to the end of all of our journeys, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your son the Good Shepherd. To lead and to guide us. As David said, of his own descendant, generations later, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Church, let's make this our prayer. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Father, as Paul says in this next section, we'll see next week, that we are the household of God. And so, God, would you help us to act like it? Would you help us to be proper leaders? Would you help us be proper members? Would you help us to seek each other's holiness as we seek to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves? And so we pray that you'd be honored in the rest of our time today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.